Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Thanks for being with us today and for joining us for this conversation that I had with Dr. Dan Strange. It was a massive joy and privilege to connect with him. He is the director of Crosslands Forum, which is a center for cultural engagement and mission. He's the author of several books, including plugged in and the one that formed the basis for our conversation is recent book making faith magnetic five hidden themes our culture can't stop talking about and how to connect them to christ he's a missiologist and a thinker about not just culture this kind of bland cold general idea but the human heart and how we as human beings are wired and how christ is the answer to the deep longings in our soul He's married to Ellie and he has seven kids. So a busy man and I was very grateful for his time. And I'm sure this conversation is going to really help you as you think through how to love people and point them to Jesus. And also we're going to end with a bit of homework for you. So make sure you stay tuned to the end. But for now, over to Dr. Dan Strange. Great to be with you, Jez. Um, tell us, why don't you start by telling us a bit about the work of Crosslands? Yeah, so um, Crosslands, uh, I'm the director of something called Crosslands Forum, which is a centre for mission and uh, uh, cultural engagement, really. And it's part of Crosslands, which is a, um, a theological kind of a training resource that from whether you're a first discipleship, the first disciples through to PhD, we offer kind of a theological education. I'm one of the faculty there. Um, Tim Chester, who you may have heard of, he's part of it, a guy called Matt Searles and others. And so we've been in existence for six or seven years. So we have foundation courses that churches can do, seminary courses, which people can do part time if you're in church leadership. And then the thing that I'm involved with is trying to help Christians engage with the culture around them. Crosslands Forum, we put on reading groups and short courses and all manner of things. So, uh, it's yeah, it's exciting. So we're based all over the place. Um, I'm based in um, uh, just near Newcastle in Gateshead. Um, but yeah, I've been there for a year now. I was formerly the director of Oak Hill Theological College in North London for a number of years. I was on the teaching staff for 16 years there. So um, yeah, it's excited to be part of the, the Crosslands team now. Mm, and it is one of those things, isn't it? Continuing professional development or theological development, cultural analysis. One of those things that we know is really important, but it's really urgent. And so often just gets kind of pushed to the back burner of I'll do this one day. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, pastors encouraging those who feel called in their particular vocations, how do, how do leaders encourage those people and then how do people in those vocations think christianly about everything I and mean, we're currently doing a, a looking at a great book by a guy called chris watkin called thinking through creation which is about what are the patterns in the bible that help us think about biblical social theory um and we're putting on lots of courses uh, like that so yeah if you're interested just go to the website and there'll be a course for you great well yeah we'll put information to all those things in the description to today's episode Thanks, Jess. Uh, today we're going to be talking about this book, Making Faith Magnetic, uh, which, as I said in the introduction there, is superb and has just really blessed me. You um, are a, a very sharp thinker about culture and a kind of provide some expert analysis on culture and but more than just culture generally like this kind of bland word it's actually the, the individual human hearts and the deep longings that are that are human that bind us together as people that aren't necessarily just for religious people or non-religious people secular or christian it's actually about uh, the human instinct within each of us for i guess you'd say for worship or for connection well to explain to us some of the the premise of the book yeah so um the book is based upon the work of a, um, a missiologist, a guy, a Dutch theologian, a guy called J.H. Bavink, who was um, a missionary in Indonesia in the middle of the 20th century. 
And I've been really impressed by his work. And he was looking at the different world religions and he was kind of saying, look, they all say different things, but there's some um, itches that everyone has to scratch. And he calls these magnetic points. And it's based on, in my opinion, very good biblical exposition of passages like Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians and Acts 17. And so the great thing about these magnetic points is that they give us traction with people who we would say are the nuns or those who don't have any kind of religious affiliation who wouldn't be interested in what we have to say. Now, Bavik's context is dealing with world religions. What I've tried to do is take the framework, because this is the biblical teaching on who humans are, and to say, how does that work in our kind of, well, post-secular or post-Christian context with people you know, um, who have just got no interest in anything that we would want to talk about. But it's the same itches that people have. You just know to, need to know where to look. So there are these magnetic points that are, um, even if people don't consciously ask them, their lives are a response to those magnetic points. And in the book, it's a, a mixture of what it means to be made in the image of God, but also what it means to be as a race of truth suppressors who suppress the truth and substitute that for all kinds of other things. And the the combination of those things, I think you get to these magnetic points, which then gives us an opportunity to have traction with what we want to say, because then the second half of the book is saying, how does the gospel and more particularly, how does the person and work of Jesus Christ both confront and connect the way in which people are trying to um, scratch those itches. So that's what the magnetic points are um, in in general. Mm. And I mean, you obviously you obviously engage with culture very uh, or very uh, your antennae are up to spot these magnetic points at work in the world all the time. It seems from the book, the amount of different examples you've got of ways in which in just everyday conversation and things we come across in the media, it, people are displaying within them a kind of a need for and a longing for something. Yes. But I think just to demystify it, and I make mm. this very clear in the book, a lot of the examples are actually from other people who have got the framework and then email me or teach it or I've been teaching in churches or whatever. So I would love what my dream is people would take the framework, but then actually anyone, any Christian, I think, can start having the eyes to see. Ah, Yeah, there's a kind of a connection point here or here's something where I could then want to get, get have a conversation um, and I think that's important. Um, I mean, there's some stuff about discipleship that we can talk about in a minute. But I think that that's the the idea is, is that it's meant to be a very a tool that everyone can use. You don't have to be a cultural export because I realize that I'm not. I mean, I, I, there's stuff that I wander around. I don't see. But I suppose as a theologian, I'm interested in the framework and then saying, look, here's a way of packaging this that you might be able to use in your uh, witness and your when you talk about your own faith in Christ. And it's one of the things I really appreciated about it, and I think you kind of you draw this out and make this point as well, is that sometimes I think we we get a little bit put off by what can feel like a crass salesman approach to evangelism. That let me just draw you this diagram and convince you of this premise and do this formula for you. And now if you just sign on the line or pray this prayer, repeat this spell, you'll be saved. Whereas I, I, increasingly we're finding, but people are in such a different place than a lot of those conversations yeah. presuppose. What we actually need to do is to, I think, listen hard to what people are saying and learn how to connect what they're saying and longing for to the person of Jesus. Yes, yeah, and and there's an encouragement that if the Bible is true about what it says about human beings that all human beings are already in a relationship with God. It's just not a good one. 
And we all, and at some senses, Romans 1 says this, everyone knows at some level, and yet we don't know at the same time. And I think when we know that, we know that even people present as if they've got no interest. They are, everyone is a religious being who is running to God and running away from him at the same time. There are people who know and don't know. Now, of course, in traditional religion, you can probably see that more on display what we have to do is to say, well, the same things are true. And I, by faith, I still know that God is dealing with this person. When I enter into the conversation, how do I bring the gospel? But they are wrestling with this in their own lives, even though they don't see it and they've suppressed the truth. And yet they are still religious beings. And that gives us encouragement, I think, when we think we're banging our head against a brick wall. Now, of course, we know in our context the suspicion of authority or the suspicion of religion or all kinds of issues means that we need to work at this over many days, weeks, months, years. It, the, the soil is hard. And yet there's always a point of contact if the people that we're engaging with are human beings, which I hope they are. <laughs> uh, and again, you, you, what I really like even about your answer there is recognising this is it because the soil is hard it's an engaging and loving of a, of a person over a period of time uh, being in relationship with people that doesn't just throw something at them and run away but actually listens and loves over a long period of time and yeah. a lot of that ta- helps take the pressure off many christians who feel an urgency and there's, there's sometimes this is a good comes from a good place an urgency to save souls but that can lead very quickly into a burden to save souls. That is something that's well outside of their capability anyway, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And and what you're kind of putting out there is actually just more of a incarnational, um, lived approach to evangelism. Yes, and also I think again, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the important thing also is that we apply the framework to our own hearts first, and then that gives us a natural end for others because. We're in the same culture. We're dealing with the same things that other people are dealing with. We know how Jesus has um, has transformed our lives. And so that maybe gives us an opportunity. But applying it, seeing that our evangelism flows from our discipleship is, I think, key um, rather than just seeing evangelism as a thing that we do. It's as the gospel changes my heart. So naturally, then I will have the opportunity and want to talk about what Jesus has done for me and is doing in me to others. Mm, that's very good. Yeah, we're not we're not doctors trying to write prescriptions for other people. We're sick yeah. people trying to give our drugs to others as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And well, you used a phrase there, and I'd love to maybe you could tease us out, and we will jump into the, the five points themselves. Um, you talked about human beings being those who are running to and running away from God, both at the same time. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean? Yeah, so I think we're 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 made in the image of God. We're made not to just to worship a generic deity, but we're made to worship the living God. And so that image of God, even after the fall, is never completely eradicated, even though we've tried to suppress the truth, and we do suppress the truth. So there's a kind of a divine human dance that goes on between God revealing himself and us suppressing. But we can never totally suppress because we are without excuse. So it's that tension of us knowing people knowing and not knowing at, at, at the same time. And that's why the idea of idolatry is very helpful, because idols are always parasitic on the truth. They take something true, but they distort it and twist it. But it means that at the base of every hope, dream, desire that people have, that it's not the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of ultimately fulfilling those things, 
there's there's a truth even though we do all that we can to kind of eradicate it but it can never completely go and what the magnetic points are is recognizing what Bavink calls a he calls it a religious consciousness that all human beings have so what we're trying to do is to um, um, help people to understand that religious consciousness themselves for us to understand it and then as I said to bring the gospel to bear on that religious consciousness which means will be connection but also confrontation as well i love that phrase just to draw that out again idols are parasitic on the truth that's just a beautiful i can't well, beautiful it's a horrendous image yeah. but it's, it's a beautiful truth there um, yeah and uh, you know as we were saying before we pressed record really the what we have just witnessed as a nation with the funeral of uh, queen elizabeth was people walking past the coffin and kind of feeling an urge or instinct to go in the first place to queue and to bow or even you got some people who kind of felt like well i don't really want to bow but i feel like i should bow i don't really i don't really know what to do but that what we saw was that religious instinct alive and well in people um and actually we as christians should be encouraged or at least note we should yeah, notice yeah. that there's an encouragement but i think there's also a challenge because i wouldn't want us to say to say just because people are maybe recognized for a small amount of time that, oh, there might be something other or there might be a transcendent realm or there might be something beyond. In biblical terms, it does matter what that transcendent other is. It doesn't, it's not just spirituality for the sake of it because people believe in all kinds of things. The question is that might awaken something, but in biblical terms, um, if it doesn't result in, um, praise to the god and father of our lord jesus christ if it doesn't result result in repentance and faith in christ then really it's just it's it's emptiness in that sense but maybe it does in our context start something of a recognition but there's a long way to go and i think my worry would be that sometimes we're kind of you know just calling something spiritual we're kind of saying oh isn't it great it's spiritual well you know there's a lot of spiritual stuff that isn't great in fact the majority of spiritual stuff isn't great and that's why the importance of orthodox christianity is 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 crucial um but the magnetic points again just start to say well the fact that people want to do something in this sphere shows that we are built in a certain way even though the way that we deal with it is often in a distorted way that leads to idolatry and um, how do we kind of use that? Again, as Paul, remember in Acts 17, he wanders around the objects of worship and says, and, and from there he tries to bridge to Christ, not in a smooth way to say, oh, that unknown God you're worshipping, that's really Jesus. It's more complicated than that. It's saying you're ignorant, but I have to start somewhere. And I'm going to tell you now about the one who isn't made by temp in temples made by human hands the one in whom we live and move and have our being and that's when he yet gets to be able to speak about christ mm, that's lovely i, I mean as you're saying sharing there like the previous generations of missionaries perhaps even those who evangelized the uk originally with the gospel they came and they saw a deeply spiritual people and it was a very obvious thing and they were very concerned about the way that these idols and gods and demons would be distorting their humanity and it motivated them to go to war with these gods and to impress christ on them and like you said it's, it's almost a lot easier to approach it when you can see a physical statue that someone's bowing down to or a festival that someone's you know keeping in, in honor of the dead or whatever but actually for us as christians in the 21st century west those elements those elemental spirits and principles and powers and demons are still just as active as ever but yeah. they're, they're deeper and they're more 
subtle and there's a wisdom that's needed and a maturity and a, a kind of a, a courage that's needed still. Yeah. Oh, and, and a creativity to try and see, to tr- a, a creativity to try and see where these things are, because my argument is that these are universal things that will always be there, even though we might have to do a lot of excavation work. They're there. Mm, super. Well, let's come on then to talk about yeah. some of these things that are there, the longings in the human heart. Uh, you talk about five magnetic points. Uh, the first one you talked about is the, the uh, whole idea of totality and that we are created for connection is that right yeah so there's there's five points you can't kind of compartmentalize them but it's worth looking at them in order so the first one is totality is there a way to connect and it's this sense that we we flip-flop between on the one hand sometimes thinking we're insignificant as human beings who are we we're nothing but when we connect with something bigger when we find belonging we suddenly realize that we do have significance and connection so we crave for connection And so in the book, I try and show what are the ways in which we are looking always for connection, whether that's um, Comic-Con, the football club, family trees, you know, there's all kinds of different ways in which we're looking for belonging. And we, when we have belonging, we find significance. When we don't have it, we crave for it. And so it's the kind of the, um, that recognition of significance and insignificance, but this big idea of belonging and being part of something bigger, um, which I think is part of that first magnetic point. Mm. Yeah, which is part of why going back to the funeral, we all watched it, or half the planet watched it, perhaps, or why people went to London in the first place to be part of it. People say that I want to be part of this moment. I want yeah, to- yeah, the belonging, and again, it's not again whether I mean, as as we said off air, I think it's complicated that what you have almost there is a a secularized religious experience because um but that idea of wanting to be in the queue that point of wanting to be with other people i think is very deep and i think we're always looking for those connection points um in 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 our lives and again where are the ways in which we find that and lots of communities who do want to give that feeling of collection and belongingness and, and, and belonging. Of course, you know, the downside is that often we want that on our own terms. And that's where we, you know, with all of these magnetic points, you have to try and where are the feet of clay in, in this particular way that we look for this. But generally speaking, yeah, that big idea of connection is important. Is, is this different from uh, just a, a recognition perhaps in in biology is looking at species that someone would say, oh, oh we're an ultra social species where that's, we're just, we need connection and and closeness with other people it's just a, it's just part of our i don't know well i mean i think it sh- well i think it shows that we're made not to be alone i think it shows that we're made as social beings um i don't i don't think that particularly that kind of naturalistic explanation it can explain things to a certain point but not to the extent in which we do have that struggle of the existential angst of belonging or not belonging or you know in in that way so um i would say that that's it's a sign for us it's a clue that we are made to be in community um and ultimately of course we want to say you know it's not just a horizontal relationship belonging we're talking about it's about our relationship with god and so um even as we'll see um the 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 best horizontal relationship will not be um yeah, there'll always be weaknesses to it. If we put belonging as 
in the way that we look for belonging if, if we think that's ultimately could be fulfilled without Christ. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of our experiences of um, how idols work, we can relate to just in terms of our appetites. I I want chocolate and so or alcohol at a negative degree. Um, and so I'll eat or I'll drink, hoping to reach the bottom, like Solomon said, the eye never has its full of seeing or the ear fits full of hearing. My appetite never has its full of filling or even when it is full and it has to vomit itself out. It's still wanting and craving more. And on an appetite level, that's true. But I guess what you're saying with all of these points and we see this on totality as well. There's a craving and a longing for attachment and connection that is never quite satisfied in our horizontal relationships, no matter how close we feel. And in terms of where that comes in the Bible, I, I make a lot in the book. I do a lot on a little bit on Romans one, which says that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been revealed. And I think it's the eternal power that we know at some level that we are creatures who are dependent upon others. We're not when human beings are not good at being gods. And so we know that we're dependent. Now, before the fall, we know our, we knew that we were dependent upon God after the fall we we're still dependent but we've changed god for all other for other things but that idea of dependence and our creatureliness and that's why we want to connect because we want to connect with something bigger because we know that we're not the ultimate reference point in the universe so we look for connection to find that sense of belonging um and that's why i think we see it in all kinds of different places um you know again the other example i give in the book is again when i lived in london on the tube just the amount of dating agency or dating apps or adverts for, you know, um, match.com, silver singles, the idea that if I find there's one person out there who will complete me, that will fulfill everything. Um, and you just see, you see a lot of that in terms of this idea of needing to belong um, and in lots of sub-communities uh, as well. Mm. And you quote Jerry Maguire as well, you complete me, but then yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. also on a on a non-relational level, you, you use the example of Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris um, that burnt down. Um, talk to us about that one. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just think that was just a very um, interesting case, given that given France probably is as close to a secularist state as you, we, as you come, that still when you have something like that, in what's often said to be a very kind of atheistic country, um, that you still have uh, people wanting to rally around these kind of um, cultural artifacts in a way that is, yeah, just wants to show the belonging of what it means. And obviously at the moment, we there's constantly issues to do with what does it mean to belong or our identity? Do we find that in our, in our nation? It's really interesting just looking even the past 24 hours, the new prime minister of Italy and what she's been saying about belonging and the importance of family and all of these issues, patriotism, nationalism, nationalism. Um, but yeah, so where do we find belonging? And, you know, sometimes it's going to be, um, fam I mean, family still, still an important concept for lots of people. Um, when I was in, um, I did some talks recently in rural Ireland and there the belonging is still a very view of the land. The land is where we belong. The land is what we have to pass on. The land is where we find our identity. So it's just trying to look at people who have no time for 
talking about Jesus or the stuff that we want to talk about, but they're very religious in the way that they're looking for these points of connection and belonging is an important one. Mm, that's really helpful. And it's great to draw it out like that, because I think what I'd love is people are listening to these five points is to start trying to develop their own sense of feeling and, and seeing how these are at work and almost to, to tune ourselves to this as much as we can first, before we worry about how do I bring this to Christ? You know, actually, it's first of all, sit in this, see oh, yeah, it, listen. It. Yeah, we've got to listen. I mean, you know, we've got to enter into the person's world and really spend some time really getting to grips with what how they're displaying this and you know we need to be good listeners definitely mm, excellent so let's that's, that's totality let's move on to number two <laughs> yeah so i mean i mean maybe maybe i'll speed through them a bit more quickly but um yeah so the second one is about norm is there a way to live so we all have rules that have to be obeyed that are given to us even people who are countercultural have their own rules in terms of subcultures so, I mean, the example I give in the book is, you know, a friend of mine, um, a lady pushed a buggy into a shop and the, the, the lady asked, are your straws paper or plastic? The lady said, uh, the shop owner said paper and the woman said, great, I'm glad I can drink here. So we all have our kind of norms, um, even subcultures. And I use the I use the example of a friend of mine who was a goth. Goths still have their own rules, even though they're countercultural to the others, but you, there's still an in and an out. There's still a norm that we have. Um, and that brings in all kinds of conversations about cancel culture. Well, and as we spoke off air about, you know, you know, the, the, the Ferrari, the anger over Phil and Holly, the norm was broken or COVID, all of these things show that, you know, I think sometimes people think or Christians think, oh, people don't have any rules or norms anymore. We're more normed now than we've ever been in quite a terrifying way. Because, of course, you know, if you have a, a norm without any way of restoration, when you break the norm. That's the problem we're facing. There is no forgiveness. So the norm has to be met. And when you, we don't do that, we get very irate and violent and we have to kind of, you know, you will meet this norm. So I think the norm is very much um, in evidence. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Douglas Murray's book, um, the Ma the madness of crowds. Madness or of crowds. Yeah, he uses yeah. the example of Lewis Hamilton, doesn't he? That um, who offended. Um, I can't remember exactly who offended people with some comments about gender, and and yet was able to make penance by appearing on the front cover of a magazine in a dress. And he said, it seems you can make penance penance if you've got enough money. But actually, otherwise, our cancel culture, our desire to norm or just be justified in some degree without Christianity is actually just quite harsh and unforgiving. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and I mean, the sadness of that book is that I think Murray, who isn't a Christian, says it's almost as if he wants there to be forgiveness, but he doesn't know where you get it from. And of course, we've got something to say about that. So this is this is um, the, the idea that Christians would talk about justification, would you say? Um, this is people wanting to be justified by their behavior or is it different from that? No, I think I think this is more that just even a, even before people. Yes, their justification is part of it. But I think it's part of recognizing that we all have rules, standards. The question is, where do those standards come from? And secondly, what happens when we inevitably break those standards? And that goes back to the cancel culture thing. There's a very interesting essay by a philosopher called Charles Taylor who said, um, look, humanism thought it was doing humanity a favor by saying, look, let's get rid of this idea of sin and total depravity and original guilt and all of this really unhelpful. Let's just kind of get rid of the doctrine of sin and just have, you know, humanity. But when you do that, you set the bar so high that when we do fail, there's no intellectual way of dealing with it. 
because you've got you've done away with the idea that actually we're fallen or um, and so again you have to find ways in which people will obey and that can become very coercive which i think is what we see in cancel culture and i think i'd want to say to that that at that point in, in a strange way i'd say the doctrine of sin is good news because it says that you know we are fallen something has gone wrong when we don't meet the standard there is as we'll come on to deliverance but i still think the idea of that people have norms and trying to show that to people that everyone has their own standards um even countercultural standards i think is an important point for people to recognize mm, i mean I, I noticed it even as well and I was examples that I've been writing down of stuff just being being out with some friends over the weekend the way that people talk about getting drunk together you can tell that a lot of them would say I don't really want I don't really like this the hangovers I hate but I know I need they wouldn't say this but they kind of have this bravado of I know this is what I do and if I do this I'm approved I'm in I've yeah, kept the, the rules the conformity yeah yeah which again then links back to the first point of belonging so there you see how the points kind of bleed into each other or they're, they're all part of this one kind of religious consciousness mm. yeah okay let's move on then point three deliverance is there a way out so people recognize the need for quote unquote a savior of some kind by identifying different problems yeah so i think it's realizing that everyone realizes the world isn't as it should be how do we get it the way that we would be and the problem is no one can agree on what the problem is so they can't agree on what the solution is and I think, Jez, I'd say it's not just a looking forward to the world we would want. Sometimes it's a looking back to the world that we thought we had that we've lost. So it's a kind of it can be nostalgia and sentimentality, but it can be looking forward to a kind of if this happened, then we would be delivered. So um, I talk about lots of examples in the book, but there's obviously then still this ultimate idea of can we be delivered from death and how do we deal with death and again whether it's kind of you know anti-aging things or elon musk or lots of ways in which we try to deny our that you know our death but even i thought i think this is important because maybe you're thinking well people don't you know people occasionally ask these questions but they kind of they don't they kind of just living their lives but what i try to do in the book is to say look even we try to get deliverance deliverance can be about these big existential questions but it can be about how do i just get deliverance to get through the day what does it mean for me that's why i need another drink i need to get the house in order for me to be delivered today so there's a very mundane level and then even people wanting deliverance from deliverance in the um, in the book i give an example of a friend of mine who's a pastor who's kind of discipling two guys in his congregation who are just addicted to clash of clans on their phone just because they want deliverance from thinking about normal life. And I think we see a lot of that in terms of distraction and diversion um, and the things that we divert ourselves to in terms of a better, a better life or whatever. Um, so I think that deliverance one, we're always looking for deliverance. But what I don't want to do is um, it's not simply oh i need to watch a marvel fil film and see how the their savior figures yeah i mean that's kind of true but what are the kind of more creative deliverances that people look for at a very everyday level as well as the big questions of mm. life and death and everything i mean materialist atheist friends of mine would would say well this is just how life is like it it, it is you know a, a survival of the fittest 
there is no deliverance. Our problem is our need, our illusion of thinking we need deliverance. Whereas actually, don't we just need to accept that this is life? And and so, what what would you say to someone who would say that? Yeah, well, I still think there's. Um, I mean, a lot of um, even like non-Christian studies. There's a big study that was done a few years ago called um, um, "Under Meaning in Unbelief." So it did a huge survey in five count continents about people who were said they were unbelievers. But there was still a lot of people who would say, I still believe there's meaning and purpose. You know, I think the classic thing is to say of, of the non-Christian, you don't have any meaning and purpose of your life. Well, of course, people do. Uh, but the question is, again, yeah, where does where does that come from? Why do we strive for that? Why do we always look for a plan or a goal? Why do we see that? We're, well, how can we say that there were times that were better that we want would want to go back to? And again, I just don't think that that's uh, simply can be explained as a survival instinct. There seems to be more to it than that because time and again, this idea of a problem that needs to be fixed, this idea of deliverance is a, is a constant theme um, throughout world history. It's mm, really helpful. And I guess looking back, that's often where um, nationalism goes to, to a purer, simpler time. And if we only change this, then we'll get back to that period in history. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So look, yeah. So, so, you know, if, if the fundamental problem with the human race is ignorance, then if we educate people more, that will be the solution. If we, close, you know, deal with the borders and have a, a better sense of national identity, then that will give more, co you know. So, again, all of the, these things are important things that we talk about what it means to have national cohesion, the education, all of these things. But it's when those things are seen as being the problem and the solution that we get ourselves into in into trouble um but yeah that the the nostalgia things in i think is interesting as well I, I give the example of in the 18th and 19th century the romantics who kind of were reacting against the horrors of the french revolution they used to build ruins because it's that idea of you know um the arthurian legends or a kind of a time that's lost that we need to kind of uh, develop and i think you know that's probably one of the re reasons why we like a lot of fantasy stuff is because it does give us a sense of, you know, going back to a different world where we do have deliverance from the the mundaneness of our everyday lives. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, we all sense that. This is why these are human things. There is something very powerful and significant sometimes when you put your hand on a piece of stone and think this has been here for thousands of years and you feel a sense of significance, importance, purpose, meaning outside of the truth is no one really cares about me. The truth is the universe doesn't, you know, neither feels nor thinks nor cares, as some would say, or oh, you've yeah, been conditioned exactly. to think that. So we do sense that. And, and I see it, you know, this is why it's important for us as Christians to recognise this isn't a them problem, but an us problem as well. Like, I yeah, see yeah. this in my own heart. Do, I, I mean, I can hide away from the family and d just sit and want to read books in the corner. And my wife will say, why do you read all the time? And if I'm honest, sometimes I think, I think I'm looking for deliverance. If I understand the world, if I can make sense of everything, I'll feel safe here. And and I have to check my own heart. So no, that isn't where deliverance is, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as, as, yeah, I mean, I can see, I mean, obviously you can see as behind yeah. me, you know, more books will solve yeah. the problem. <laughs> um, and if I know more, uh, and of course, it's that's not how we're wired like that. So, yeah. So I think that I think the deliverance one is a, is a, is a common one. Yeah, yeah really helpful. OK, so now we're coming on to what we what you describe as the favourite of all your children. Um, Destiny. Yes, yeah. Talk to us about I that. like this one. Yeah. So destiny is this idea that we are both. Bavink has this great line that we 
both live our lives and undergo our lives. So it's the relationship between are we in control as human beings? Do we have freedom? Do we have agency? Or are we being controlled? Are we just a kind of a, a puppet on a string, a pawn in someone else's chess game? And again, like totality, I think we flip-flop between both of these things all the time. Sometimes, and again, some of it is, some people you'll know, they're kind of the go-getters. They can do it, they can change. Other people will just think they're victims all the time. And these are individual, but I think they're cultural as well. It's interesting, I did these this kind of material in a country like Slovakia, where I asked this question of Slovakians and what do Slovakians think? Do they think they're in control and being controlled? Well, I've been told that the psyche often, I mean, there's obviously a bell curve, but the psyche of the nation is we've always been occupied by the Austro-Hungarians, by the Czechs. We're a people who feel as if we don't have much agency. Now, I don't think if you went to the States, that might be different. But again, it's this flip-flop. And the, the in fact, the best illustration, Jez, I've had since writing the book is um, I did this material with some students at Newcastle University of, for the Christian Union. And I said to them, what are the what are the issues that first years are dealing with? And they had two things that absolutely sum up this point. On the one hand, there's a lot of this um, phenomena called manifesting using crystals where people kind of think they can bring reality into being if they manifest it. So a friend of this Christian had thought that they'd manifested their boyfriend because they thought they, you know, they wanted it and it happened. But on the other hand, the thing that everyone was dealing with that week at Freshers' Week was this um, spate of injection spikings in nightclubs, people being injected in the neck like date rape drugs. So there was fear about, you know, going out. So you've got on the one hand, we can do anything we can control. On the other hand, we're just being controlled. And that's why, you know, we're, we're fearful. And that's a great kind of juxtaposition of both of those. And I think a lot of students especially have said to me, they've been brought up saying, you are the generation that's going to change the world. You can do anything. And they get to university and they realize in the first couple of weeks, they can't change anything. And so that disillusionment is, I think, very strong in terms of some of the, I don't say this is the reason for all the kind of, you know, mental illness or whatever people are dealing with, but certainly there's a sense of disillusionment with what we were told we could do and be. And I think destiny, I mean, in the book, I talk a lot about superstition, but I think since then it's morphed into this idea of, do we have freedom? Am I free to do what I want or am I being controlled? And what does that mean for being a victim? And of course, that's lots of a current thing about how we talk about, you know, victim and perpetrators and what does that mean? So the destiny one, I do think really hits on a cultural spot at the moment mm. about where we are. Yeah, I, I use the example of, in the past, it was know thyself. Now, it, then it in the 1980s, it became be yourself. And now it's define yourself. You can do this. You can control your destiny. Yeah. But there's certain givens, the reality of life that I think we just stub our toe against. Um, now, I think, again, I think we try to we're trying to reconstruct reality. But still, there are givens that mean that, you know, um, you 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 just realize that actually you don't have that agency. But I mean, and again, the great thing about the magnetic points here is that we see this at a very everyday level but these are questions that philosophers have been asking for you know thousands and thousands of years fate and freedom and what is the nature of is there a is there something in control or are we in control and so i think it's a very um uh potent magnetic point that i think really resonates with people and you can see it all over the place mm. 
Yeah, I had a conversation with someone recently who, you know, who's exerting all of this kind of confidence. You know, he, he works for an, an energy company, trades in millions of pounds all the time. He predicts the future for energy issues. And he was talking to all about where we're going and the energy crisis that we're facing. And he looked very much a commanding. I, I can, you know, I know all about this. You can trust me. And then in another conversation, it was, I need sleeping tablets to go to bed at night and I can't switch off and I'm deeply worried about the future. Okay, there it is. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And again, just to echo that, Jez, I did this I did this in um, this material in Pittsburgh where um, you've got a lot of kind of the best of the best in terms of high-tech companies. And there was a guy who was in the church there who said, look, what you've said about people feeling they're not in control is true. I work with people actually who could literally change the world, but the responsibility they feel to get it wrong, <laughs> that puts a massive amount of weight on them as well that leads to them being stressed as well. So whichever way you do it, and again, it's going back to this idea that we are not, creatures are not made to be God. And when we try to be God in any way, on the other hand, we still have significance. We're not just, you know, we don't, it's not, a, there's, there's no meaning because we are made in God's image. So we, we struggle, don't we, always between these two things without the anchor of the the truth that says, well, we're made in the image of God. We're not God, but we are images of God. And so without that teaching, we just don't know wh where, are we significant or insignificant? And we just can't find any kind of um, resolution there. Really helpful. Um and so last of your magnetic points is the magnetic point of higher power, belief in a universal transcendent or some kind of other beyond yeah, our experiences. Yeah. So this is where I think it differs a little bit from the original guy, Babink, because when he's existing in Indonesia, everyone believes in gods or spirits or higher powers. The question is, which are the ones that can deliver connection, norm, deliverance and destiny? In our context, I think this is the one that's buried that you have to excavate and you only get to it as you talk about the other magnetic points. So connection, well, who or what might connect us? Norm, where do those norms come from? Deliverance, is there deliverance and who can provide it? Destiny, who might be in control? And as you discuss those more, you start asking, well, maybe there is, is there something beyond? Not, I don't think automatically you get to God, but this idea of transcendence or something other and then i think as you ask then well what kind of transcendence is that is it personal or impersonal if it's impersonal then the universe doesn't matter well what does that mean if it's personal is it a personal god that i have to appease or is it someone who you know what kind of so i think as we ask that question that question of um uh is there a way beyond then again i think as we've already discussed I don't want to forget here to, in our context, in the Western context, in the UK, especially 2000 years of Christian history means that there's kind of a, what we might call secularized religious experiences. I mean, the great example I give in the book is this idea of champing mm. where people uh, can pay to camp in derelict churches or churches that aren't being used. So they get a sense of some kind of, you know, um, experience. So, you know, a lady who was interviewed on, on ITV said she wanted her kids to wake up with lights coming through the stained glass windows as if that would kind of wake wake something in them. But I mean, it's all very general. And again, it's God on, on our own terms. But that idea of, is there something beyond? Was, you know, John Lennon wasn't right that above us is only sky. But that grasping for that, I think, starts to get to that kind of higher power. But 
we only get to it in our context, I think, as we really push in on those other points. Mm. And when I, when I first read the Higher Power as a as a title, instantly I was thinking of um, um, the Alcoholics Anonymous because most people I know who use that term are in the addict community in recovery. But this isn't that, is it? Or is it kind of linked to that, but it's different from that? Oh, no, I, th I, th okay. I, th I think it can be. It's interesting. I'm just reading a really interesting book by a guy, a theologian called Jeremy Begbie, who's a professional musician who does a lot on theology and the arts. And he's written a great book where he says, you know, artists talk a lot about the transcendent, but it really does depend. It does matter what, how you define what the transcendent is. What's the what's the character of it? You can't just say, I've just had a transcendent experience. It does make a difference to know what what's the character of that and that for him as a christian it's that that has to have a kind of a, a um a, a triune a, a kind of a the, the idea that god has re revealed himself in some way it can't just be a generic transcendence and i think though that we want the generic transcendence because the idea of a personal god who we are accountable to is something that we run away from as sinners even though we want it at the same time so do you see how that it's the kind of running to and running away from so we love that's why we love idolatry because idolatry is a designer deity we make it but unfortunately it ends up controlling us and it can't give us what we want and so that's where we try harder and harder and why we we have a we become addicted to these things because we want it and we don't want it at the same time so i think the higher power does kind of start to answer that is there someone who gives who is the one who's in control who is the one who delivers what is the thing that's going to connect us um and that can come out in more formal religious beliefs but i think what i'm trying to say here is that everyone is kind of reaching for that all the time it's really helpful i mean i was surprised even to see marie kondo made an appearance with her um tidying of a, of a home that bowing to a home acknowledging there is something about this aura and space that i need to acknowledge that's transcendent and beyond um which again a lot of people just we don't understand you know this we just think oh it's just about tidying my house but but we do at a deeper level understand there is an energy and a power at work in the universe so we're kind of torn between uh, my, my secular mind telling me it's just about tidying my stuff but then there's a part of me thinks no there's something deeper and more personal that chair isn't just a chair it's grandma's chair that was handed to me and so there's meaning attached to it and there's something beyond us uh, and I, when um, C.S. Lewis in The Grief Observed wrote about the loss of his wife when he said have I lost a person or have I just lost the connection of atoms that I mistook for a person there's a there, I, I ascribe meaning to this individual believing there's a personality here that I named and loved and that's an acknowledgement that there's something beyond just the the sum of the parts doesn't explain it all exactly exactly yeah um, I love that example of champing, by the way. <laughs> that was fascinating to me. And once you see it, you can't unsee a lot of this. I walked past the church. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Yeah. I walked past the church building that was advertising space and light you know, through our stained glass windows. And I was like, surely the gospel's better than space and light. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. we could critique the church, but that's an easy, an easy target. Um, or maybe that's where we come we come on to now. So these are human needs and cravings within each of us. I think, as we said, there's a, there's a value in us kind of spotting it in our own hearts and souls, but then also learning to spot it in the world. And then I guess the next step is recognizing how we as Christians believe all of these longings find their satisfaction in Christ in a particular way as well. Do you want to just walk us through how each yeah. of them point to Christ? So I think the, the key phrase here or the construct that I've been using a lot in my work is this idea of subversive fulfillment. 
And um, I go um, in my plugged in book and Making Faith Magnetic. I do a lot of work on what that means. So 1 Corinthians 1 is the great example. So the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So the cross is always going to be contrary to the world's ways of doing things. It's the big fat no. So there's always going to be confrontation. And yet in the 1 Corinthians 1 passage, Paul talks about two ethnic groups, Jews and Greeks. Jews, their hopes, dreams, worldviews, social imaginary is about um, power. Greeks look for wisdom. So Paul articulates two different groups, two different subcultures that have different hopes and dreams. And so we preach Christ crucified. It's foolishness and a stumbling block to Jews and Greeks. But to those who have been saved, Christ is power and Christ is wisdom. And we might immediately think, well, isn't that a felt needs gospel? Well, no, because Christ is power and wisdom for Jews and Greeks, but in precisely the opposite way that they were looking for it. A crucified Messiah is not powerful. A crucified Messiah is not wise. So the idea of subversive fulfillment is to say there's always connection with the world's stories, the way the way that we write over God's creation because we are image bearers, because idolatry is always parasitic on the truth. But there'll always be fulfillment as well, because, yeah, there's there's those things that we look for are finally found in Christ. But it's not a if you have the fulfillment without the confrontation, then you do get up. It's a felt needs gospel. If you only have confrontation, then you don't have any point of contact. So I think it's showing that that's a great model of how we are to understand the gospel's relationship to any kind of culture, idolatrous culture subversion and fulfillment so what i do in the book is then to go back to those five magnetic points and show how could jesus be both the subversion and the fulfillment of connection norm uh, deliverance destiny higher power um focusing especially on jesus the person who is jesus and i try and attach each of the um uh the points to an i am saying and trying to show then what we need to be doing is on the one hand exposing the way in which people are scratching the itch and it's only getting redder and redder and on the other hand <coughs> to show how jesus is the subversive fulfillment of these points as well where we find lasting connection and norm and deliverance and destiny because jesus is the way the truth and the life mm, I, I i there's a great quote you say our good news is not that we offer commodities or even things like forgiveness, justification and peace. We offer people the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself is the good news. Yes. And I think, yeah, I think that that's crucial. And I think this is something, for example, that, you know, people like Glenn Scriven and another have spoken a lot about. It's not as if Jesus is the instrument through which we get this stuff. Jesus is the debt. Jesus is the start. Jesus, it is Jesus. And what the gospel brings in terms of being united to him by the spirit and so i think in all of these things in terms of connection and i mean you know and, and in totality then i try to show well what does it mean for as I've, I've already given the example of the doctrine of the image of god deals with this question of significance or insignificance that the world can't work out you know we are images so we are insignificant because we're not god but we're images of god which means we've got great significance you know just that little phrase the image of god deals with a whole load of problems that human beings can't articulate um but something's gone wrong we feel disconnected but what does it mean then to be connected 
what does what does union with Christ mean? It means a dying to self, but not that we lose our individuality. It's not kind of going into the abyss of nothingness. We regain our identity, our true identity. We have individuality, even though we are connected to something bigger, which is Christ himself. And then to talk about the church as being the ultimate community that we see this side of the new heaven and the new earth. So what I'm doing here, Jez, is, you know, I hope there's nothing. This is all like bog standard gospel teaching Christian theology. But what we're trying to do is to answer if the magnetic points are true. How do we give a gospel answer that actually answers in the way of the magnetic points? How is Jesus the way in which we connect? How is Jesus the norm? You know, Jesus is both appealing to conservatives who know that there is there are moral standards that must remain but jesus is against every hypocrisy he is for the outsider so jesus is both conservative and progressive at the same time jesus is the one who delivers us supremely from death which is the ultimate deliverance that we're looking for jesus is the one who isn't an impersonal fate that i have to appease or i have to live by jesus is a loving heavenly father who has a plan for my life and yet it's Jesus who says to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Um, you know, maybe maybe that was the strongest part of Justin Welby's speech last week, his sermon about the queen having knelt down before God, before people knelt down before her. That's what a, a, a wise ruler looks like, because we know that there is one greater. Um, and then Jesus is the higher power. He is the way, the truth and, and the life. And we see God revealed in Christ um so again that's that's kind of the gospel but it's how do we um articulate the gospel just as paul said that dukes jews look for wisdom uh, power so christ is power what does it mean as paul wanders around the objects of worship so what are the objects of worship in our culture and how does jesus both confront and connect so that's what we're trying to do in the last bit of the book uh, super. I love you know, I love that idea of subversive fulfillment that, you, as you said, avoids just being a felt needs gospel, because I do think it's important that as preachers, we work hard to connect to show how Christ does meet their felt needs. But once they've seen that, it's then a but actually he completely undermines those needs as well and realizes he's the fulfillment in a completely different way. Yeah. But... Th and there's got to be exposure. And I wonder whether, you know, I, you know, there are some 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 evangelicals are great at the connection not great at the confrontation others are great at the confrontation but not great at the connection and there has to be a way in which we do both at the same time um and again just to highlight you know the way that we do that best is by applying that gospel message to our own hearts so in the last chapter of the book if i can just mention i talk about the magnetic we've talked about the magnetic points jesus is the magnetic person what does it mean for us to be a magnetic people and we're only magnetic as we stay magnetized by Christ and as people then see that the way in which Jesus has transformed our lives as well. So that last chapter is about we can get pulled away by all kinds of other things. But what does our discipleship mean to be magnetized by Jesus so that people see him and not us? And, and what are the ways in which sometimes we're demagnetized? And at the end of the day, um, what I talk about in the book, and I'm very happy to say a, a, a pastor friend of mine read the book and said, I was really pleased that your book, your answers were very, were very disappointing in some ways, anticlimactic, because the answer to stay magnetized is all the things that we think that we should be doing. 
It's about being part of the local church. It's coming under word and sacrament. It's about being community together. It's about every week going out into the world where we face being demagnetized and being remagnetized every Sunday as we come back and worship with God's people and are then sent out. There's no magic bullet there, but that is the way in which we're, we're magnetized. And my, my goal, my dream, I hope, is people would get the book and say, what do these magnetic points mean in my local community? And what might it mean for us as a church to apply these to my, to my heart and as a people? And then how might we then become more magnetic and attract others? Mm. And I was I was thrilled to see you use um, that Spurgeon sermon about the marvelous magnet. I think that was one of the first sermons I ever read as a new Christian. Oh, fantastic! So I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, this man clearly is worth listening to. <laughs> but so you, well, it was great. It was great because once you have that, once you have an idea like the magnetic thing, you're looking for it everywhere. And I just was working about. I'm sure people would have used the illustration of a magnet, but that's a brilliant sermon because you know Spurgeon's saying, look. If you, one person is attracted to Christ, then that person will be attracted to that other person. But that person still needs to be attracted to. So it's this idea that Jesus is the kind of the, the marvelous magnet and everyone is drawn to him. So how do we stay magnetized and how do we not be demagnetized? And I think that is about partly that's a discipleship question of what are the ways in which Christ can keep us magnetized and and as a bod, as an individual, and as a body of Christ's mm. people. Although, as you said, Ch Charles Spurgeon borrowed your magnet metaphor without permission. But, um, <laughs> so, exactly, he he travelled through time to get that that illustration. So, kind of to underline that, you said the way we stay magnetised in your book. You say number one lo by loving Jesus, number two by loving our identity in Jesus, and then number three by loving Jesus's body, the church. And so, as you said, in, in one sense, you're not trying to reinvent or offer a new technique or a new. If you pray like this, or if you meditate like this, or if you add this, it's actually you're all you know. In a lot of respects, you're already doing this. You just got to do it more deliberately. Do it more intentionally recognize the value of these things make sure you're applying the gospel to your own heart make sure that you stay in love with jesus and particularly in a for a post-covid age recognize the absolute necessity and value of belonging to the people of god under authority yeah in, in constant kind of engagement with word and sacrament sacrament and i think i'd double double since the book came out jez i think i'd double underline that disciple evangelism flows from discipleship just this idea that we are applying this to ourselves because I do think that that gives us the evangelistic opportunities because we then can like empathize or sympathize or understand where people are coming from because we face the same struggles. The question, the answer, we, we are in the same culture with the same issues, but we have a different answer than other people do, but that gives us, we're put on a level playing field because we know, I mean, I think one Corinthians talks about, doesn't it? The common, the struggles common to human beings, which is true. And uh, I think, if we apply it to ourselves and we can show how Christ has given us uh, through Christ, we have connection and, you know, all these other points, then I think that's a naturally a way in uh, to do it. Mm, yeah. I know, like it as well. You talk, you talk in that final section about the importance of seeing our lives, not as pie charts, but as flow charts. We're not to in to kind of break up and compartmentalize our living. So that there's boundaries between the two. This is my leisure activities, my church activity but actually recognizing it's all kind of interconnected it flows to, it flows on from one thing to the next and that jesus we're journeying with jesus through it all it's a great way of thinking yeah about it. i mean glenn, i mean glenn, glenn glenn again has a great line there he says it doesn't he? you probably said this in terms of you know what we need to be doing is um evangelizing christians and pastoring non-christians and i think that's a great way of kind of 
understanding what's going on here in terms of because I think originally this material that I taught at Oak Hill was um, in ev evangelism and apologetics. And I think one day a student raised their hand and she said, look, this is great stuff, but you, you could just call this discipleship as in as as the gospel applies to me. So it will apply to others rather than that kind of them and us mm, kind of idea. Superb. And what a lovely phrase as well. Evangelize the church and pastor the lost. Well, it was with a group yesterday talking about preaching and reminded of that quote, brothers, save the saints, save the saints in our preaching, because you're right, we do drift from Christ. And so to come back to that and oh Dan, it's been such a treat uh, to spend time talking like this. And I love your work. I love the way you're thinking and all that you're doing. Thank you so much. Uh, is there any anything else that we haven't said? Do you think I just want to kind of leave you with this as we finish? Uh, no, I, I, I just encourage people to read the book. And then um, hopefully at the end of this year, I'm hoping to do, do a kind of a leader's guide as how, how you might use the book in a local church. But read the book together and then work out what does this look like for my own area? Don't just use my examples, use your own examples and do it together as a group. And I, I, I hope churches are starting to kind of uh, do that. And so that would be my um, encouragement as we try to get uh, traction um, on, on these issues. Oh, wonderful. And great for us to connect with you. Hopefully this won't be the last time we hear from you and get to engage with you. I hope the work at Crosslands continues to go well. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Jez. It's great to, great to be with you today. That was good, wasn't it? Some really helpful insights from Dan there. I love some of the quotes he said throughout there. All human beings are in a relationship with God, just not a good one. It's a really helpful way of thinking about people and how they relate to God. He said we're running to God and away from God at the same time. He said idols are parasitic on the truth. They take something that's true and then they distort it. And that lovely phrase that he quoted about us having a religious consciousness. Well, now it's time for your homework if you stuck around this long. So I want you to grab a piece of paper or ideally a note on your phone and I want you to list these five uh, magnetic points. So we have totality, is there a way to connect? We have norm, is there a way to live? Deliverance, is there a way out? Destiny, is there a way to control? And higher power, is there a way beyond? And what I'd like us all to do is start to spot where and when we come across these different magnetic points in expression, whether in cultural forms or on a TV show, or an advert, or just in conversation with friends, write it down. Because the more we become aware of the human longings that people have for connection, for a right way of living, for deliverance, the more we become aware of those connections, the more we'll see them in ourselves, and then the more we'll be able to help recognize how Christ is the true form of each of these idols, these parasitic forms of Christ, the truth. Well, that's it. That's your homework. Let me know how you get on. Um, you can email me at podcast.newgroundchurches.org. Let me know things that you come across or email Dan Strange himself. He's set up an email address, themagneticpoints at gmail.com, where you can write to him any great examples of where you spot the magnetic points in action. That's it for this week. God bless you. Thanks for being with us and look forward to bringing you more conversations about life and leadership. Goodbye. Goodbye.